You're listening to All Marine Radio on the All Warrior Radio Network. Now, my next guest is very cool to have on the program. Uh, somebody who I've never met uh, was introduced to him by Tim Lynch. And uh, we actually talked about um, <clears throat> some of his work, um, not this last podcast, but the podcast before. His name is, uh, he's right now living and reporting from Afghanistan. His name is Franz Marty. So, uh, Franz, first of all, uh, welcome to Marine Radio. Thanks for doing this. No, thanks for having me. The uh, I, I always tell people before we can talk to you about you know whatever we're going to talk about, we have to talk about you so we can find out if we can believe you. Okay, so uh, so first of all, tell us uh, you were born and raised where? I was born and raised in Switzerland. Uh, studied also there. After graduating from law school, uh, I was traveling a lot in Central Asia. Um, and then via various other countries uh, back home. And then when back home, I couldn't find a job that was like uh, interesting me. Uh, I decided to come to Kabul and try it as a freelance journalist. This was in December 2014. And it was the second time uh, that I came to Afghanistan. The first time was when I was traveling in, in uh, Central Asia. Uh, I entered uh, Afghanistan for the first time from Tajikistan, spent one month in the Wahan Corridor, trekking around, and uh, liked it very much and was interested in seeing the rest of the country, so I decided to try it as a freelance journalist here. And since December 2014, I'm based in Kabul, attempt to get to the provinces as often as possible which is often difficult, but uh, I have managed to come around a little bit in the country. All right. So <clears throat> what was the first? What year did you go to Afghanistan the first time? The first time was in summer 2013. I was like... Let me ask you a question. Who goes on vacation in countries where there's wars going on? Yeah, well, back then the Wuhan was like quiet. Now the Taliban are apparently also there, but even now there is like no war. So uh, I was in Tajikistan, like staying there, traveling around, uh, also learning the language and um, trekking through the mountains. And then like people told me, yeah, I mean, the situation in Afghanistan is like bad, but the Wuhan corridor, this, this like panhandle of Afghan territory in the far northeast, wedged in between Tajikistan and Pakistan, is kind of uh, completely quiet. Uh, there are not many people living up there, uh, stunning mountain scenery, and um, yeah, also interesting history. Uh, and when people told me it's completely quiet, I decided uh, to, to cross over and uh, trek through the mountains there, and it was no problem at all. Until very recently, um, every year a bunch of tourists would like to do that, enter from Tajikistan and then go up into the mountains uh, and the security situation was no problem. Now, recently, a few days ago, the Taliban took over the Wuhan Corridor. It was kind of weird. The government uh, just, the government just uh, like abandoned it 
and they're like 20 Taliban holding the district in quotation mark. Right. <clears throat> well, before we talk about Afghanistan, I still I have a few more questions about you. All right. Um, so, um, growing up Swiss, okay, that's, uh, as an American, we look at Switzerland as this, like, kind of like mythical place, kind of like Brigadoon. Um, this land of mountains and, and beauty and neutrality. Um, what is it like to grow up Swiss? I mean, you, the Swiss have a certain world perspective. Can you... Can you kind of uh, can you can you kind of teach us about the the Swiss world perspective? Well, that's a difficult question. Um, as I would say, we we're like very privileged. I mean, growing up, it's like uh, uh, there are not many problems. Um, I mean, you have like a strong economy, uh, good schools, everything else is in place. So it's like really you kind of have all the opportunities um, that you can get. Um, and yeah, like uh, quiet. Uh, I used to tell Afghans, yeah, that it is indeed quite like paradise. Um, paradise. What ex like what like what like mindset? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm biased. I'm from there. So uh, <laughs> uh, the Afghans have a saying. They say like... Uh, uh, the the homeland is is for everyone uh, his own Kashmir, because apparently Afghans think like Kashmir is paradise. Unfortunately, I've never been, um, but yeah, that's what they say. Uh, so yeah, um, I mean worldview. I would say it's like it's like quite diverse, but uh, we thanks to like okay, we also had good good situation like historically speaking. Uh, so it's kind of uh, we have this like inclusive political system where you have like, yeah, that uh, all diverse you uh, can kind of find a, a modus vivendi or with all our um, our referendums and, and votes uh, that you can have like these vast diverging views of different groups, parties, whatever, kind of bring everything under umbrella that it works like uh, peacefully. Um, and it's not as polarized as like in other countries, mainly because, yeah, as I said, for example, we vote about everything. So it's kind of like we don't have to choose a certain political leader. Uh, we can just like every three months vote on a bunch of questions. Um, and then you can like kind of change your mind all the time. Um, and yeah, it works. The, um, so you, you grew up in that system and you want to be a lawyer for God's sakes. I mean, like the world needs one more lawyer, Franz. And, um, so what this, you, you go home after your, your travels and, and there's, it's a huge world out there. Why Central Asia? What is there something about Central Asia that attracted you or was that just on your list of things to do? I wanted to go to a place where not everybody goes. As for example, like uh, in Switzerland, like a lot of people to like learn languages or taking a gap year, they go to the States or they go to Australia. Mm -hmm. So um, so I wanted to go like kind of off, um, off the beaten track, so to speak. Oh, you're that, uh, you're, you're that guy. As a, as, I mean, Central <laughs> Asia is a really good place for that. Like uh, in in... 
Uh, I mean, if it wouldn't be for the war here, probably people wouldn't know that Afghanistan exists as a country. But for example, Tajikistan, most Europeans have never heard of it. Right. Um, plus, as it was also like uh, earlier in 2008, 2009, I was for one, two months in Russia, uh, crossed Russia by train. And uh, then uh, I, I was since then also interested in kind of this vast area in the middle of Asia uh, that usually doesn't get like much coverage uh, or that you don't hear that much of, uh, from. And uh, then I kind of settled on Central Asia and Tajikistan was a little bit coincidence. Um, I mean, I said like I want to go somewhere where I can like... Um, go hiking uh, and for example Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Kazakhstan it's mostly like steppe and desert so it's kind of Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan where you have like mountains and like beautiful untouched nature uh, and then yeah I settled on Tajikistan but was more or less coincidence that it was Tajikistan and not Kyrgyzstan Alright so your tourism uh, bug uh, your odd uh, taste in, in tourist destinations gets you to, to Central Asia. What um, what plants the seed to become a journalist uh, and write about what's going on in Afghanistan? I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a that's a little bit far away from being a lawyer in Switzerland. Yeah, it was kind of like yeah. At some point, I lost my way and then I slid kind of into this. <laughs> so um, while I was traveling, I wrote my first article. But this was like more uh, as out of fun. And because I thought like, yeah, no one back home knows about Tajikistan. Let's write something about it. And it was never like the intention like to make a career out of it. Uh, I also kept like a journal on my um, on my travels. Um and then, yeah, traveling around, see all these new places, uh, meet all these different people, um, kind of, uh, yeah, I, I, I liked it and I uh, wanted to, to have a profession that allows me to travel. Right. And uh, I tried back in Switzerland to, to like get something that you could have like foreign postings, uh, but then nothing worked out. And then I thought, like, uh, yeah, I mean, I can try it as a journalist um, because who was this? I believe this was Foresight who said, like, I wanted a job that allows me to travel and keep my own, uh, own hours. And like freelance journalist was kind of just the, the only option that was left for that. And then I decided to to uh, make this this leap. Uh, and frankly speaking, um, when I left to come here for Afghanistan, I thought I won't last like six months. Um, and here I am, six and a half years later. Um, <laughs> so that's how, how it happened. So how how does uh, so on the business side of that? So you go there, and you don't really have an affiliation because you're a freelance. How does a freelance journalist, uh, you know, how does how do, how do they feed themselves? How do they how do they pay rent? How do they support themselves? Do you, do people, you know, pay you by the piece and pick you up? Do you do you have contracts with different different outlets to provide content for them? How does a freelance journalist exist? First of all, I'm probably not the best person to ask because uh, <laughs> I've had success. Um, 
I mean, most like other guys that come, they usually like like have already contacts as that, you know, a few editors and that you then come and like can all as a have contacts to like pitch stories and so on. Um, I kind of didn't uh, and thought like, yeah, um, if you come to a place like Afghanistan, if you haven't done freelancing somewhere else, it's kind of editors will tell you like you, you can't just like go, go and so on. Right. So uh, then I decided, well, OK. Uh, if I ask them from Switzerland and tell them that I'm going, they try to discourage me. So let's just go and contact them from there. And then it's kind of try and error. Uh, I mean, nowadays with everything online, um, you check uh, which publications might be interested in, in, in what you can provide or what you want to provide as a freelancer. And then uh, it differs. Some some magazines, they have like clearly submission section or want to write for us on their website uh, where it is like a clear process. In, in, in other cases, it is uh, you have to find the email of the editor and then like just contact them out of the blue. Right. And then, um, yeah, usually pitch a story. Uh, and honestly, like most editors never, ever reply. So you just have to send out a ton of emails. And then if you reply, a lot say no. And then, yeah, you have to hope that some say yes to your stories. And then often it is, okay, once when you deliver the good story, then you can might, uh, you, you might build a relationship on that and then it gets easier. Um, sometimes it's also then you have a relationship, but then that it changes. And then usually you get, I mean, it's a case by case thing. So you, you, you're not like contracted. Some magazines you have like to sign something regarding like the intellectual property right and so on. Um, but like payment wise, it's kind of you pitch an idea. They say whether they are interested and how much uh, they can offer. And then you can accept or not. And usually as as a freelancer, like you're on the weaker side. So whatever they offer, you kind of have to accept. Um, you can maybe negotiate a little bit a higher rate, but uh, it doesn't make that much of a difference. So uh, you kind of have to take uh, what you get. And then it is like the vast majority. I mean, practically all freelancer, it's just like hand in mouth. So uh, a lot have also saved money as also like I did that you have like reserves if if work doesn't uh, go well. Uh, but yeah, most of the time it's kind of you have to be happy to like cover your your living costs. Um, and then, yeah, if you're lucky, uh you, you can set up a good collaboration and and earn a little bit money. But I mean, no one gets rich with this kind of work. But they do get famous. I mean, you look at the the most uh, the most prominent American journalists um, have, uh, you know, have uh, um, excelled uh, or at least uh, got their beginnings and, and were able to show what they could do. Uh, in terms of reporting and writing, uh, you know, many in the Vietnam War and others in our subsequent war, and that's where they get their start. And so it's a, it's not a foreign place for writers and content providers to to begin to do their work because there's a national audience, there's an international audience for it. Talk about so so if people are looking to find your work, Franz, where do they go? Yeah, usually nowadays, the, the easiest is if you follow me on Twitter, there you can uh, find all the pieces. Uh, then there are, I mean, if you if you Google my name and, and Afghanistan, 
you will also um, see uh, what I have written. Uh, plus, there is, for example, Paydesk is a website where as a freelancer, you can set up like a profile. Um, and then like media can like search for specific parameters and see who's available. Uh, and there I have, for example, have a profile with a short bio and with a selection of articles. Um, I haven't, I haven't like a website where all my work is like, uh, taken together. Uh, so like this pay desk profile is like the best where, where you have a selection. Got it. Got it. So on, on, uh, Twitter, it is Franz, F-R-A-N-Z, J, Marty, and that's uh, that's how you find him. But if you just type in uh, Franz, Marty, Afghanistan, it comes up prominently, and then you can follow him. And uh, and, and, and your website, uh, where people can find your work, is, is called what? As there is, I have this, I have this uh, profile on a website that is called Paydesk. So if you Google like Paydesk and Franz J. Marty, uh, you will also have uh, like my, my profile with a short bio, plus with a selection of article that I have written um, and that I deem like the more interesting of my work during the, the, the past few years. Got it. So I'm just on that website right now. And, uh, and so I will put the links on that um, uh, in, in this post. Um, all right, let's switch gears and talk about Afghanistan. Um, uh, Tim shared an article that, that you wrote recently, and you, the, the gist of the article is, um, you know, there is this tsunami of reporting that Afghanistan is, you know, is, is, is on this breakneck, you know, space uh, to turn itself over to the Taliban. And you very meticulously... Uh, documented the different districts uh, that were had been in the news, and and then the, and then ultimately footnoted the reality behind that. Uh, so so let me ask you: Can you just kind of uh, give people who haven't seen that, and again, I'll attach that post to this to this that article to this post here, so they can see it. But could you um, talk about the genesis of that article? And uh, and then you kind of going very meticulously going through and documenting, okay, this is probably what you read, all right, this is what happened. Um, tell us about how you got there. Yes, um, yeah, since like May and especially in June, uh, as is um, reported everywhere, the Taliban have made like um, extreme advances in Afghanistan, like unprecedented taken over uh, like district after district right now we are at almost 200 districts that they have taken over since 1st of May um, and the reporting was in my opinion um, kind of one-sided it was very often like this is kind of the beginning of the end uh, the whole state will collapse the Taliban sweep through the country and take everything and while I by no means deny that the situation is extremely worrisome in Afghanistan and that it doesn't look good at all, I nonetheless thought like the, uh, all, all the mainstream reports are kind of missing part of the story. Kind of, yes, it is very bad, but there are like certain aspects that you have to qualify. So the Taliban are strong, but for several reasons, 
it seems still now like unlikely uh, that they can like achieve a whole takeover and that the whole Afghan state collapses uh, without a fight. Um, and this was this was like the reason that I thought, okay, um, I, I write an article and, and, and try to highlight like these aspects that are not um, mentioned in, in, in other reports. All right. So one of the things that we've been, you know, um, you know, Tim spent many, many years in Afghanistan. Uh, another guy who comes on my show, Jeff Kenny. Uh, deployed to Afghanistan a couple of different times as a as an advisor. Uh, I spent a year in Afghanistan down in the Helmand province, um, and so our our experiences are all very different uh, in that in in the in the vast world of Afghanistan. Um, one of the things that they've talked and tried to impress on everybody is, you know, is is and, and I'll let you comment on the first one. That you know, we as Americans, we look at Afghanistan as a nation, and and Afghanistan as a nation has never existed in that sense. Could you could you talk about that? Because that's I think something very hard for Americans to grasp. Well, maybe first of all, never tell to Afghan that there are no nation; they won't <laughs> take this too kind. Um, I mean, it is kind of, uh, how shall I say, it is kind of, 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 of difficult. I, I wouldn't agree that it isn't a nation. Because one of the problem is, um, yes, there are like a lot of, of, of differences among Afghans. So you have different ethnic groups. Then uh, sometimes you have like, for example, the ethnic group of the Pashtuns is like subdivided in a whole area of tribes which the Afghans themselves don't completely, as I have like a complete picture of which tribe uh, and which sub-tribe has like a beef with which other sub-tribe and so on. So so it's like this really complex um, mosaic uh, and, and many differences. But on the other hand, like I never met an Afghan who would say that like these differences are that great, let's split up the country, kind of like we have our part, you have your part. So everyone kind of agrees that it is this country in this boundaries, uh, in this sense as a nation. Uh, but like every group has a different idea what this nation should stand for uh, and, and, and how it should be governed uh, and, and what it should look like. Uh, and then this might create the impression, yeah, that you there's so many differences that it's barely anything holding together. Uh, but yeah, at the end of the day, no one wants to split the country up, which might also be the, the as well, a main problem of Afghanistan, so to speak. Every group, be it like the current government, the Taliban or like other pro-government groups that are not that fine with the current government, Everybody kind of wants to rule the whole country, but no one has the power to do so. Um, and given that Afghans uh, are fond of resolving their disputes with weapons, this then leads to the war that uh, we have going on since often in American media. It's just they just talk about the past 20 years. Uh, but for Afghans, it's uh, 43 years, 42 years uh, that the country is at war. Um, and that's mostly due to, to internal reasons, as I said, that everyone wants to rule, 
everything, but no one has the power to. Talk to us about, uh, so as we put this mosaic together, talk to us about the Taliban. What are they? I mean, we see that as one word, right? The The Taliban, as if it's kind of like this monolithic entity, this organized monolithic entity. Um, so could you explain the Taliban to us? I can try. Um, you're right. I mean, it's not monolithic. Um, so it is kind of the Taliban are Afghans who are of the opinion that their country is like occupied uh, by foreign forces. And now that foreign forces left, um, for them, uh, the problem is still that they say the current government, the current system of the state is a Western copy and was like imposed on Afghanistan. And to them, this is not acceptable. And so they see themselves as freedom fighters uh, to like liberate their country and um, uh, yeah, overthrow this foreign system and put in place their own system, which they are very cagey about, except that they say it is like Islamic. Um, so religious fundamentalists that want to, to um, liberate their country and set up um, a system according to their own um, conservative Islamic beliefs. Uh, and then you have like various shades of it. In the beginning, uh, the Taliban was predominantly Pashtun as uh, this, this like largest ethnic group of Afghanistan. Uh, but then during the past years, uh, you had also like people from other ethnicities, Tajiks, Uzbeks, Turkmens, Hazara, even like joining them, uh, people that used to be like traditionally in the past, not aligned with the Taliban or even like enemies with them. And the reason that these people joined can be like various. I mean, some people joined um, because they lost someone in a government operation or in an American airstrike, uh, a relative got killed and they want revenge. Uh, others, sometimes it's also just a principal kind of uh, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So if there is a land dispute between you or your tribe and the other tribe, and the other tribe is aligned with the government, uh, then you need support from someone. And, well, uh, there's the government and the, the the next best other group is like the Taliban. So then you kind of, for opportunistic reasons, like join them. Um, so you have like this mishmash uh, that, that, that people fight for for like different reasons. Although, um, or maybe to, to um, make a preliminary mark, the problem is to explain the Taliban that very little is known about the Taliban. The Taliban are not easily accessible. Like during the last past years and so on, yeah, you have like a spokesman or now a political office in Doha since several years uh, where they engage with the international community. Uh, but this engagement is also like limited, most, the vast majority of this engagement is like pure propaganda, uh, which doesn't tell you like who or what they really are. And like to meet them in Afghanistan is uh, difficult to arrange. Uh, there are like risks involved um, uh, because, yeah, they might see you as a foreign spy um, or uh, have like other issues with, with like you 
trying to visit them. And uh, then there's also, on the other hand, like from journalists or researcher, there is also kind of a fear of the Taliban. Um, and then, yeah, there's very little like interaction. So um, you, you can't you can't say for sure who exactly they are um, due to this lack of interaction. Uh, and in this like limited instances that, that I had, like that I have met Taliban or like spent a little time with Taliban. Um, I would have to say, despite the many reasons that single fighters are fighting for, most of them are really, really religiously motivated. They do believe they do God's work on earth and that this is uh, a jihad, a holy war. And uh, that's like their main motivation. Um, of course, you have exceptions to that. Uh, but I, I would say this is maybe the best way that you can describe the Taliban um, with the limited information available. Okay. The next piece of this mosaic is uh, the federal government. Um, uh, can you give us a, a little thumbnail history of Afghanistan in terms of um, in the, the United States – uh, attempts to have has attempted to create something that has really never existed in the history of Afghanistan, um, and that is what a powerful, strong federal government. Um, could you talk to us about about who runs the federal government and who they are uh, in this in in this mix of Afghanistan? I mean, to begin with, I, I to some extent like disagree with with this depiction. Um, for example, the Taliban always also say like that the, the current Afghan uh, government uh, is a Western copy, like that the current system was like uh, just copied from the West, which is absolutely not true. The current Afghan constitution is with not too many amendments, uh, the same constitution that existed in the 60s, if I'm not mistaken, under the then Afghan king. Now you have a president, back then you had a king, but you also had like kind of the same setup with a strong uh, central state. Of course, in reality, it looked a little bit different uh, because the king's reach also uh, wasn't in, in every corner of the country. Uh, but you had kind of the same and, system. And I guess, like and I guess Franz, th that would be my point is that, you know, it might have been the same setup, but the king's reach was certainly not, you know, as extensive um, as as the federal government's reaches today, yeah, yeah. But uh, I mean, the system. What, what my point is, kind of, the system was the same. Um, the king had also an easier situation. Uh, as this is like now, simplistically speaking. But like okay. simplistically speaking, the king kind of said, like, okay, if like in far flung corners of the country, uh, the tribes or local people do a little bit what they want. Uh, the understanding was a little bit if you keep it down, if you don't make it like if you don't make too much noise, right. uh, you kind of can have uh, you can roll however you want. Uh, we don't interfere too much. Okay. Um, but uh, you nonetheless, you like owe allegiance to to like the central state um, where after the American invasion, uh yeah, the, the 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 outlook changed a little bit with with all this, or a little bit, a lot, in fact, with all this money uh, flowing in, this development money, 
uh, there was kind of this like we can do this uh, attitude um, that you can like bring development and a modern government uh, to the farthest valley. Uh, and it has been tried, it has been tried uh, in some extent to some to some degree like successful, but in many parts, uh, yeah, this, this then caused like like frictions uh, because maybe what the central government wanted or what back then um, the American led uh, forces wanted with the development projects uh, was maybe viewed differently by like local people. Right. Um, and uh yeah this this like created friction uh but nonetheless uh, the system is such and also there like most afghans agree with a with a strong centralized system that's what they want uh, there are some that say like it should be like federal uh but i would dare to say that like the majority of afghans they they they're in favor of a strong central state uh the beef then begins of who should like lead that state and then you have this crazy discussion like every ethnic group claims they're the biggest uh which of course can't be uh someone someone has to be smaller than the other um and then this led like to the problem kind of whoever you choose as the president you have like a large constituency that is not happy with the current president and then you also have like a, a lot of discontent um this was then tried to be solved with co-opting local power brokers, giving them like money or positions. Um, and uh, yeah, this, this then led uh, to a system where you have uh, a lot is it's kind of a rentier state, like a lot is dependent on, okay, I can, I can give you the votes of my group, but in return, I want this, this and that, um, which, of course, uh, creates like a whole array of problems um, and frictions within communities, uh, which then sometimes also joined the insurgency because they were not happy with, with what the government did. Um, but to be fair, what is the alternative? I mean, sometimes people complain and they say like, okay, the Americans supported the wrong people, right. uh, the wrong Afghan leaders. And then I have to say like, then, then I sometimes told Afghans like, okay, but like, let's assume like who else should they have supported? Because if they wouldn't have supported guy A, but instead guy B, you would have exactly the same problems, just like vice versa. So for the Americans, it was kind of like, or for the international community, whoever you choose, you will have problems. Uh, but the Afghans are like uh, very swift in like blaming this all on, on foreign influence rather than saying like that the underlying problem is that there is no leader that can like unite a big enough chunk of the population that the system works. So... <clears throat> So the system that you described that exists, you know, pre the United States is a federal government uh, st uh, out of Kabul and that it in, in the far flung reaches of Afghanistan, as long as you didn't create too many problems, you, you would run you would run your own business. I, I'm curious, American involvement following Russian involvement um, is America's involvement um, after the hunt to kill Osama bin Laden. Was it a fool's errand? 
I mean, do you ever see, knowing what you know, and what, actually just what you said, that everybody thinks it was the largest group, uh, the, you know, this is foreign influence. If they just would have supported my group, then maybe this would have turned out different. Um, could the American have, effort have ever been successful? It's a difficult question. Um, it's a difficult program. I mean, I mean, I think the goals were. It is. It also depends on which point in time you're talking about. Okay. It was like at the beginning when all seemed to be like well, it was like way before I came to Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Yes, it seemed possible. It certainly seemed possible, and uh, there there would have been ways to to like not let this slide down. Colleagues of mine have like recently like pointed out. Uh, which is to some extent true, like in 2001, 2002, 2003, even later, like a bunch of Taliban were ready to make peace, as were ready like to kind of uh, and make peace. I mean, practically like to surrender. But in that time, it was kind of not only from, from the American view, also from the like anti-Taliban Afghan view. It was like, we won. We don't have to like, uh, we, we don't have to, uh, make peace with these guys. We don't have to let them back in. We don't have to integrate them in society. We have to hunt them down. And at the time, I mean, in hindsight, it's always easy to criticize, but like at the time, it seemed to make sense, I would dare to say. And it seemed possible. Um, and that it then like deteriorated. This had like, like an area of reason also that, um, like efforts of the international community, weren't as thought through as they should have been. Uh, a lot of the problems were, for example, also created that it was just like a ton of money around and it has to just been spent somehow rather than like stepping back and saying like, okay, let's let's take small steps uh, and, 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 and don't devise all these grand projects that we can't really be sure... Um, yeah, that the money will be like spent as it should be. Um, but at the time, this this, this wasn't a concern. Uh, and again, in hindsight, it's easy to criticize. And then once it got out of control, um, yeah, of course you have the problem. But in the end, I often um, tell Afghans, um, yes, there is foreign influence uh, on various sites in Afghanistan and the Afghans always blame like this for for the misery they are in. I mean, at the end of the day, if the Afghan people would unite, foreign influence wouldn't be able like to create problems. Uh, it is now just, yeah, that you have a completely polarized society, which fair enough exists like in most countries on, on earth, I would dare to say. The difference here in Afghanistan is that of Afghans, due to the past four decades of conflict, they're accustomed to solve their disputes with weapons and the countries are washing weapons. And then you have like the recipe for for like a civil war that is going on since 40 years here, more or less. Uh, and uh, yeah, it could have been like mitigated, but that how do they sometimes say that Afghanistan becomes the Switzerland of Asia? That's like, yeah, that's certainly like a, a castle in the sky that just will never, as it will, won't happen like in this generation and also not in the next. 
tell us about what we're looking at now. I mean, I um, and if if you don't mind, let me just read a little bit from uh, the piece that 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 Tim shared with us. Um, and uh, and once again, I thought it was. Um, I thought your inclusion of all the different quotes gives this like a local flavor and, and, you know, things that, you know, when you search for articles to read that are that are well researched and well written, I, I think you find the things that were included uh, in your articles. I'm, I'm I, I, again, before ever meeting you, I, I, I was a fan. Um, this is a paragraph under um, under a, a subheading. How much did the Taliban take over and how did this happen? Question mark. Second paragraph says this. Furthermore, it is important to note that the Taliban did take over many district centers without much, if any, fighting. One example for this was Wardouj, a district in the northeastern province of Bakazashah, from which government forces retreated on the 2nd of July and which is known, which is a known Taliban stronghold. The order to retreat from Wardaj, am I saying, I know I'm not saying that right. How do you pronounce it? Wardaj. Wardaj. Came from Kabul. A soldier of the Afghan National Army's territorial force told Siga via telephone on July 3rd, the man had until the withdrawal from Wardaj been stationed in Chakaran. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that too. The administrative center of said district. Quote, we took all vehicles and weapons with us and left the district without a fight. He further stated, adding that there had been armed skirmishes in the days before the retreat. A high-ranking political officer from Wardas corroborated this. However, according to him, quote, commanders on the front lines decided to withdraw as the morale of the troops was low due to the fall of many, many districts. Close quote. A resident of the village near Chakaran also confirmed that the withdrawal was not forced, describing it as, quote, a trade-off to, to whose detail he and other civilians were not privy. Similar things happened in dozens of other districts as the Afghanistan Analyst Network, as well as other not publicly available data seen by SIGA documented. So that's kind of, that's kind of writing that, that Franz does. So talk to us about what we're seeing in Afghanistan, because you, uh, as you're obviously familiar with, the narrative is Afghanistan is 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 going at an ever increasing rate to the Taliban. Um, talk about what you see is Afghanistan after you know an American and NATO presence going to become what Afghanistan had has been in the past. It certainly does look good um, because, yeah, uh, now we're under a little bit under 200 districts overrun uh, since May 1st. And the whole country has like around 400 districts. Various sources have like uh, various numbers for total districts. So uh, it is as everything in Afghanistan, a little bit a mess. But like, yeah, the, the Taliban has like overtaken uh, half of the districts in the past two months, which certainly doesn't look good. Um, how it will play out, and maybe also this, no one foresaw this. Um, all analysts that I know, um, 
yeah, it, it was like expected that the Taliban maybe make some inroads, but not that massively. And I have like even heard from people who have contacts with the Taliban that the Taliban themselves were surprised how much they all of a sudden took over, which was mainly due to this paragraph that, that you um, quoted. In many districts, it wasn't that the government was like forced out and it wasn't that the government was like weaker than before, because, for example, like U.S. troops, international troops, during since since more than a year, they have done like little. Yes, some airstrikes, but like it's not that all of a sudden the military situation of uh, on the ground has changed because U.S. troops left, because most of these U.S. troops that left, they were like confined to bases, uh, busy with training activities. So like the, 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 the military situation in these districts was more or less the same like as months ago, where the Taliban, even when they tried, they were like fought back. And now, uh, in, in these past months, it was like that in some cases they fought and took over the districts, but in many more, uh, in, in many more cases, it was more or less like the, the Afghan government forces packed up and left. Uh, and this wasn't like a planned retreat that the Afghan government said, like, okay, what's the point? Let's concentrate our forces in strategically important areas. Um, the reasons are not really clear. For example, in Badakhshan, uh, yeah, in Vaduj, several stories. In like other places, the Wakhan Corridor, where I was first, uh, when I years ago came first to Afghanistan, there was like no way that it was like necessary or inevitable that the Taliban like take this over. The government could have just like stayed there and all would have been fine. Um, but then you have these different narratives. Some narrative says it was a order from Kabul. Some conspiracy theory even says that like Afghan soldiers believed that it was a deal between the US and the Taliban that like half of the country will be handed over to the Taliban. And they thought like that's this is part of some grand plan. Um, and others probably were just like, uh, okay, I'm in a remote outpost. I'm in a remote district. Uh, districts around me are falling. I don't know whether I will get resupply from the central government or from the provincial government. So if the Taliban come, I might be able to fight them back. But at some point, I will run out of bullets. And then what do I do? So kind of, okay, if everyone else goes home uh, or retreats, let's also do this. And this is, of course, like very worrisome. Um, but, and this is what I try to do in, in the article. Yes, it is bad that the Taliban have taken that over, that much over. But at the moment, the Taliban might be able to overrun several provincial centers and take like whole provinces. But they are not in the position to take over the whole country by force. And even the Taliban themselves seem to acknowledge that and saying like their current strategy is apparently that they want to say at peace negotiations with other Afghan stakeholders, we have taken over that many districts. We are the stronger, so we now give you the chance to surrender or otherwise you can face the consequences. This won't happen because there is a lot of Taliban opposition in, in the country. Um, so the Taliban might take over, in the worst case, a large part of the country, 
um, but that they would rule the whole country, that they would sweep through the whole country and control everything is unlikely, especially even you said, as it was before, the Taliban never controlled the whole of Afghanistan. The day before the U.S. bombardment began uh, at the height of their power in 2001, they had, I believe it was like 90% or so, but 10% were never under their control. Is that is that the most likely outcome for this in in your eyes? As uh, I mean, you've been there for what six and a half years now. Um, as as you see this, um, you know, to me, the assessment I think that you just said that it's not, you know, you know, it, it seems like, you know, if I was a young soldier fighting, you know, in Afghanistan. And I wasn't sure that you know I'm going to get resupplied. Um, I don't want I don't want to die, you know, for nothing. I mean, it seems like they're you know the Taliban in this area are dominant. I you know I don't want to die here for nothing. Um, so yeah, of course. I mean, I'm, I'm I'll leave if everybody else is leaving. If nobody else wants to stay and fight. Um, so so do you do you personally see Afghan going to that? that kind of uh the way tim's articulated it um that that the taliban will control that which what they have historically controlled and but they they will they are not powerful enough to rule the whole country um do you see that happening or do you see the taliban attempting to rule the whole country I'm, and, and when a, i say when i say rule the whole country it seems like now what they were trying to do with uh, propaganda, uh, their overtures in the media, all the districts falling, is they're trying to use that to get the Afghan federal government to surrender power to them, right? So do you see that as their most, that's their only card to play because they really don't have the military power uh, to roll the whole nation? Or do you see them attempting to take over the whole nation militarily? At the moment, they're attempting to take over the whole nation, but not militarily. They try to fight and talk strategy they try to push and then like um in their mind they will get or they hope to get like the country handed over at the negotiation table right. uh without having to uh have bloody fights for cities or the capital Kabul. That's their current strategy, apparently. Uh, I mean, part of it was like officially stated by by Taliban uh, and the rest is kind of uh, shows in their actions. That, in my opinion, is a very unlikely scenario um, because the current government won't surrender. They, they, they won't surrender to they rather they rather burn the whole country down than than like surrendering to the Taliban like this. So they won't like achieve that, and that's then like the that's then the, um, the most important question afterwards. What happens? So in my opinion, like during the next few weeks, month, uh, this will drag on like that. The Taliban make inroads, but probably stay still clear of attacking provin- or taking over provincial capitals, uh, or like attempting uh, to take over like Kabul by force. And uh, trying to to put the pressure on to get at the negotiation table a surrender, um, and they will try this for several months. Um, and then, when they realize that that doesn't work, then it's the question of how they go about it. 
um, whether they really like try to take over military everything. I think the likelihood for this is big. One thing that one one reason that might like limit that the Taliban leaders as well as other Afghan leaders, uh, most of them, they have like uh, they have like lived through or been part of the civil war in the 90s uh, when it was like different sides against each other, hundreds of rockets fired on Kabul every day. Um, I mean, these people know the cost of of. Um, I'm not saying that they're like humanitarians and think like the poor civilians that die, but they, they like know the costs that this has on like people, on fighters, on casualties, on infrastructure, uh, and that might limit this a little bit. Uh, I'm afraid, though, that at some point, um, yeah, the prerogative of we want the power uh, will like outweigh that and that they will nonetheless go for like full blown civil war. So if so, um, so if I could put that so, so their pressure both in in the media, uh, I would say diplomatically in quotation marks in terms of the way the Taliban operate, and then their operations on the ground, that that they will continue to put more and more pressure across the board, but not to the point where it's going to cost them real casualties, and then you believe that that there will but there will come a point. When you know when they will push the issue militarily, um, because that that desire to control the whole country will outweigh even their um, their understanding of what it did to the nation in the nineties. That ultimately they will try to um, roll the whole nation militarily if if their if their diplomatic if their military operations short of that major offensive don't work. And then, and the federal government does not surrender to it. That ultimately, that we will see um, a full-blown fight for Afghanistan. Yes, as because, like in in my opinion, the problem with the international community puts a lot of hope in the peace process, right. which is, in my opinion, mostly unjustified. Right. And the main problem there is, at the end of the day, every side says we want peace, but at the end of the day, none want. If you look at it. Uh, the government wants the Taliban to surrender and the Taliban want the government to surrender. Neither will happen. The government is a little bit, they at least say, okay, we can talk about certain things. The Taliban is like very, very fundamentalist in this regard. Uh, they kind of officially like, okay, in press conferences and on official statements, they kind of say we want to have like peace negotiations and we want to find a solution with all Afghans. But the problem then is usually they say, like, for example, the current president, Ajrav Ghani, they say he's not an Afghan. He's right. an American puppet. Right. So the Taliban kind of choose who is an Afghan and kind of the ones that surrender to them are Afghans. And with them, we can make peace. And the ones that don't are evil foreign puppets and they don't have any right and have to leave or get killed. Um And uh, also through all the statements, like between the lines, it becomes clear, like, the Taliban don't want to share power. They want it all. Um, and at the moment, they think they can get it at the negotiation table. And if this doesn't work, then they will fight. And how this fight will then turn out is difficult to say. Because you, you what you mentioned before, like historically, a lot has changed like during the, 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 the past 20 years. Badakhshan had no Taliban, pre was never ruled by the Taliban during their regime. 
no Taliban presence at all. And now in the first days of July, almost all of Badakhshan's district fell to the Taliban. So you have like areas that were like traditionally anti-Taliban and like resistance strongholds during the 90s, uh, during the time of the Taliban regime, are now under Taliban control. Uh, I mean, maybe people there as well. I know from one district that isn't on the Taliban control, they resist. Uh, but how much this is and how they can organize themselves is hard to say. And this might also have been one tactic of the Taliban. A lot of these overrun districts, especially in the beginning, were in the north, in these areas that were traditionally anti-Taliban. And it seems that the Taliban put the offensive there to like stifle resistance before it can appear. Um, and how this will play out now when negotiations will eventually fail in some way or the other, be it that there is an agreement, but that it is so weak that it collapses or that there is no agreement at all. Um, how this then will play out uh, is, is like really difficult to assess now. Um, so the resistance would certainly be, anti-Taliban resistance would certainly be on the back foot. Uh, and it could be that they could like, take over a large chunk of the country. But then at some point, they would probably be overstretched, the Taliban, because like, I mean, the men have to come from somewhere. And this is also what I tried to write in my article. A lot of the areas that they have to taken over, they don't really exert physical control there. So like if someone would rise up, it could also like flip again easily to the other side. And uh, then it's like very much open how it will play out. You know, I, I enjoyed that part of the article because, you know, you, you talked about, you know, you know, the Taliban, quote unquote, has control over this. But the thing they do, and it's been written about extensively, the thing they, they've historically done very poorly um, is administer, you know, provinces and districts that they've taken over. They uh, They consistently get, and Tim has been very good about articulating this about... Uh, they get higher marks relative to land disputes and settling those things, uh, but relative to um, making sure that the the district and the province runs the way it's supposed to, things tend to fall apart. Given that, uh, which essentially becomes kind of a power vacuum, and you were just kind of talking about that, do you see that giving impetus to things like the Northern Alliance reforming out of necessity? Because as you go through this phase that the Taliban will take over, that um, they will probably not, uh, if history is any indication of future performance, um, they will probably not administer it well. And so there will be a need for somebody locally to step into that vacuum. Do you see uh, alliances like the Northern Alliance um, at some point um, being put back together or possibly being put back together as a local remedy to this vacuum? At the moment, not that much. Uh, to be honest, I was like surprised and others also that, as I said, for example, in like these Northern Alliance strongholds, that uh, a lot of the territory was just like abandoned and there has been barely any resistance. Even now, like the resistance from like government forces or others is like limited. Um, it does exist, like in Kalai now the capital of the northwestern province of Badris, where uh, government forces and locals who took up arms fought back a Taliban offensive. 
Um, maybe now, currently, it might happen like in Jeberan, uh, the the capital of Jajdan province in the north, stronghold of uh, Dostum, uh, a warlord that has been around since forever. Um, so you have like this, but on on a very low scale. Uh, and the Northern Alliance, uh, there is a lot of, uh, I mean, even back then when it was like at its strongest, it was like kind of born out of necessity. So you had even then like differences between its different leaders. Uh, and now the bickering is like uh, even even greater. Um, and there doesn't seem to be, at least for now, um, a sign there have been reports, it has been like talked about, like they, they call it uh, Muhammad Du, uh, resistance, resistance to, right. um, to, to like revive this, um, this, this Northern Alliance uh, thought. And uh, this was like mostly centered on Ahmad Shah Massoud's son. Right. But it hasn't yielded much yet. And it is kind of, uh, yeah, um, given with with some of their strongholds being overrun, uh, it will be like more difficult to like put this together. And this is kind of what I mentioned before. Apparently, the strategic um, impetus of the Taliban was exactly that. If if we mess up these traditional Northern Alliance uh, areas, if we take over there and if we can disrupt the situation there or like even take it over and hold as far as it is right now, uh, then we can like quell uh, this Northern Alliance reconstituting itself again. But at the end of the day, I know enough Afghans who are staunchly anti-Talib. So let's say even if they even if they would be able to overrun the whole country, at some point, people there are a ton of people that are not happy with them, and they will find one way or another to fight back. Fair enough, a lot will probably leave and, and like become refugees. But I mean, some will in some form fight back. Plus then, if the Taliban would have the whole country, as you said, they, they like struggle with administering it. Either they would have to compromise, which I can't see. And if they don't compromise, it might also be that within the Taliban, frictions begin to like appear. So far, they have been quite unified, surprisingly unified, in fact. Um, but it's also like a, um, a very Afghan thing. As long as you have a common enemy to fight, you're like unified. Uh, as soon as you have like the victory, they begin to fight among themselves. Um, so you could even have like infighting if the Taliban would take over the whole country. So that is, that is why it is so difficult to like predict how a resistance would look like, right. but I'm pretty sure there would be one. Um, all right, you've been very gracious uh, of your with your time, and uh, my guest today has been Franz J. Marty. Um, got a very cool picture here, Franz, in black and white. What kind of tie is that? Is that like a bolo tie? Are you like a? This is this is like an untied bow tie. Uh, this is like my dinner jacket that I have here for fancy embassy receptions. Ah, so he's got his bow tie untied and he's got a pretty massive looking beard on. Um, not looking very Swiss, I might add. We as Americans, we have this image of what a Swiss person looks like. That is not what we imagine. As well, a Swiss friend of mine said like, um, 
I look like one of these grumpy mountain farmers <laughs> in, the, in the Lost Valley in the Swiss mountains because they usually also have huge beards. So, uh, yeah, uh, there are people like that. All right. I, in closing, um, first of all, I can't tell you how much I enjoy the conversation. Um, uh, in closing, uh, I want to ask you two questions. Should we expect to see more of what we've seen um, in the uh, more of what we've seen here recently? Should we expect to see more of that in in the near term? And the Taliban to um, continue to gain momentum and and use the media to try to get the Afghan government to capitulate. Is that what we'll see in the short term? Yes, definitely. Um, probably not with that pace, but honestly, um, honestly, the Taliban also ran out of districts to to like take over. Um, I mean, so far, uh, they what they took over so far uh, was was like easy at some point, and this maybe this is important to say. Yes, so far, soldiers have abandoned their position. At some point, they have nowhere to retreat to, and then they will also put up another fight, as, for example, happened in, in the capital of Batris. So more of the same, but probably also more resistance from the government. Okay. And then longer term, everything you just described to me in the last 15 minutes was Afghanistan um, essentially descending back into its historical uh, conflict. Um is that what you see in the long term happening? Yes, although I would not speak of descending into it. Apart from the very first year after the American intervention, it has been a civil war. It has been a civil war since 40 years in different stages of intensity, but it's kind of not descending back into chaos. It's just like, yeah, uh, getting... Uh, as a kind of the situation that we had during the past years, just worse. All right. Now, Franz, what question have I not asked you that is really important for people to, uh, for you to speak to before I let you go, for people to understand what they're seeing when the news comes out of Afghanistan? Uh, I mean, there's too much as it's also like uh, everything I said, uh, there would be so much more to add or, or like to, to, to further explain. Uh, but maybe the important point, uh, especially for an American audience, is one, yes, the Taliban uh, are powerful. Um, and this is because a lot of Afghans support them, not all of them. But like sometimes if you have like media coverage, it's kind of the Taliban or this evil outside force that oppress Afghans. The, the Taliban are Afghans and a lot of Afghans support them uh, for whatever reason. Uh, and it's just like a fact that that uh, won't go away uh, in the foreseeable future. Um, and uh, the, the second thing might be um, that what we haven't talked about, but what I uh, think is important to notice, especially for an American audience, Al-Qaeda is still active in Afghanistan. Other foreign fighters are active in Afghanistan. There are a problem. 
but it's also in media coverage often you have like yeah this al-qaeda operative was killed and he was this like huge transnational threat most of these foreign fighters are not as dangerous as the Americans think uh the problem is a little bit yeah uh as was seen like on 9-11 if there's such a small group of them it might be already enough uh to cause havoc on the other side of the globe uh, so, like, this risk exists, but one should also be clear-eyed. It exists. It, it isn't as bad as sometimes American press makes it look. Uh, but it is certainly also not as easy as the Taliban claim they can keep it under control. All right. Franz, I hope you don't mind if in the future I bother you and uh, and get you to come back on. and Because... Uh, uh, it's been uh, absolutely delightful to have you on and to and to uh and to chat with somebody who uh who spends their days uh in Afghanistan. Where do you where do you hang your hat? Are do you live in Kabul? What what part of the nation do you live in? I live in Kabul. Um not because I like Kabul that much, uh but as a journalist it's kind of uh to be connected with the ministries, um embassies uh, offices of like aid organizations it's kind of like you have to be in the capital so i have like a normal flat in a it's it's kind of right at the edge of the center of town um but yeah just like a normal flat with nothing special <laughs> um, yeah can't afford more as a freelance all right um franz first of all thank you very much um franz j marty you can find his work uh, all you got to do is scroll down on this podcast, and uh, you'll see uh, links to some of his articles. One here is in The Diplomat. Um, you see um, at uh, at Paydesk. Um, you, you'll see the link to his work there. You'll also see the link to his Twitter account. And, um, um, but, um, and you'll see the first article. Um, that uh, that I was introduced to him, and it, it is entitled "What Recent Taliban Advances in Afghanistan Do and Do Not Mean," and uh, I thought it was just a outstanding work. And so, Franz, absolute pr- pleasure to have you on today. Thank you very much for taking time out of your day to kind of explain things to us um, who have to see it now through a, le- a distant lens and often uh, a lens that comes through the American media that that we all question. Uh, whether you know they're out there and able to tell us actually things that are on the ground, and that's what I enjoyed so much about the work that of yours that I read. So, all the best of luck to you and stay th- safe. And uh, I hope we can do this again. Pleasure was all mine. Uh, feel free to reach out anytime, or also listeners. Uh, my email address is on the Twitter account. Uh, feel free to reach out. All right, Franz. That'll do it. It's uh, interesting, you know, when I, you know, I'll ask questions and he'll disagree. And then by the time he answers it, he doesn't really disagree. Right? Like, no, I think most <clears throat> Afghans will tell you that they're, you know, that Afghanistan is a country. But none of them believe. <laughs> But they all disagree what the country is. So, um, I think you see the point, right? Um, 
one of the things that, that I think Americans um, don't really understand is that the Taliban do have, you know, broad support in the country. And Tim said this on more than one occasion. You know, the way the Taliban deal with, you know, the fundamental important issue in a rural society, which is land disputes, is viewed by the Afghan people as honest and and effective. And hence their credibility. Now, again... France makes a great point saying that the worst thing the Taliban do is govern. So um, it'll be very interesting to see what goes, you know, how this thing ultimately unfolds. So, um, yeah, my thanks to him for coming on. Awesome. And hopefully we've made a connection through Tim Lynch. I got to thank Timmy uh, for for that introduction. And uh, Tim, who keeps making contacts in Afghanistan and trying to find credible uh, writers. And uh, Franz is an interesting guy, first and foremost. And uh, not one of the, like a lot of freelance journalists are, you know, you, you fall, you pull the string on that. And they're not, I mean, stories that are unlike Franz's, you know, which is, yeah, you know, I wanted to go travel, so I went to Central Asia. What? <laughs> Like who goes? Who goes to? Who goes to the mountains of Tajikistan? And so, freelance journalists do, or somebody who's going to become a freelance journalist. Do. So, my thanks for uh, Tim for the introduction. My thanks to Franz for doing this, and hopefully, it won't be the last time we do it because it certainly is a, a different and interesting perspective. On that note, have a great day. I'm Mike McNamara. This is All Marine Radio. I am out.